Hello, I'm Nikki Chadwick. What exactly is the circular economy and how can it make a massive contribution to saving our natural assets, minimising waste and pollution and to tackling global challenges such as climate change and biodiversity loss? That's what we're going to find out. The circular economy is a different way of thinking about how we produce and consume, using resources more efficiently by using them more than once. In this episode, we're going to look at fashion, which is a fundamental part of daily life and a crucial sector in the global economy, with more than 300 million employees across the value chain and generating 1.3 trillion US dollars a year. But the garment and footwear industry is one of the most polluting sectors on the planet, producing more carbon emissions than international flights and maritime shipping combined, according to figures compiled by the European Parliament. Joining me now is Lily Cole, a model, actor, author and sustainable fashion activist. Her book, Who Cares Wins, gives a comprehensive summary of all the different ways that people, organisations, academics and companies are thinking about positive change, from carbon-sucking machines, mushroom leathers and sky diamonds, to Indigenous wisdom, shared paternity leave and universal basic income. She also has her own podcast discussing critical issues and their relationship to the environment. Lily, thank you very much indeed for joining us. So how did you first become involved in the circular economy? Well, thank you first and foremost for having me. I started working in what's considered the circular economy, I think, long before I realised that's what it's called. (laughs) Um, And I came into it in a kind of strange, accidental way. Uh, I was asked to start modelling when I was 14 years old. And um, by the age of 15, I was already travelling internationally for that. And um, kind of at the beginning of quite a successful career in fashion. And by virtue of doing that, it sort of accidentally brought to my attention different issues in supply chains. Um, the first the first of them was um, diamonds. I worked for a diamond mining company that had a lot of controversy around how and where they were sourcing their diamonds. And I travelled to Botswana to try and investigate that at the time. I was also contacted by the Environmental Justice Foundation, a small charity in London that I'm still a patron of, and they sent me a report on cotton farming. And I remember it just sort of blew my mind as I kind of got my head around the very negative impact that cotton farming can have when not done well. And then I did a trip with them to India to look at a much better kind of supply chain around carbon neutral fashion and um, organic cotton. And so I, get, I make reference to a few examples just to kind of shed light on how by modelling, I sort of accidentally got put in the situation where I was being shown um, both positive and negative practices in some examples of the fashion trade. And I felt a kind of real sense of responsibility to, to better understand these issues and to increasingly start modelling for companies I felt comfortable, you know, championing and selling the products of. And so that sort of took me on that journey, Um, which isn't necessarily circular. That's more around supply chain transparency and fair trade, um, the materials we're using, et cetera. But inevitably, once you start looking at that kind of that aspect of um, the environmental and social issues of production supply chains, you very quickly discover the need for circularity. The fact that there's just a huge amount of production and that everything we've produced hasn't 
has an afterlife and the need to be more mindful about the afterlife, whether it's in a landfill or upcycled, recycled, biodegradable, etc. And with your work as a model, do you think that you are unusual in the fact that you were looking at how sustainable and ethical the fashion industry can be? I don't think I was alone in that. There are lots of people in the fashion industry who've been looking at kind of social impact and sustainability. And there are other models too, um, some of whom I'm friends with, who I think particularly in, in recent years have been, been leaning into that direction. Um, for example, Arizona Muse I'm friends with, and we became friends, I think, because we both shared this interest. That being said, it, it was when I started doing the work, um, which is nearly 20 years ago, it definitely, I felt like an outlier. Um, and there was a much smaller cohort of people working in this space than there is today. And it felt a bit sort of anti-fashion and it felt a bit kind of risky from a <laughs> job security perspective, for sure. Um, but it felt like the right thing to do. And, um, and so I, I didn't feel like I had much choice <laughs> to follow, um, to follow what felt right to me. Um, and now the good news is there are more and more, um, brands and companies leaning in this direction. And it feels like a very, very mainstream conversation in the fashion industry. Um, so that's good. <laughs> and what do you think are some of the biggest challenges? There's obviously a lot of support and more awareness now, um, certainly than there was. But what do you see as some of the major challenges in, in making a positive change? It's a good question. I think, I mean, ironically, the, the growth in interest in this area, which is a huge success and win, that there is much more consumer awareness and consumer demand for more responsible fashion. And there is more kind of policy positions that are pushing things in that direction. And there are more companies, therefore, engaging in this transition. All of that is really positive, but it comes with, I think, an inherent risk that we're already seeing playing out of greenwashing, that there is an appetite for responsibility and sustainability before there is very clear, maybe legislation and frameworks and technical kind of platforms that can facilitate transparency. And so we're sort of in a transition phase, I would say, where the appetite is bigger than the capacity to actually communicate very clearly what is actually responsible, what is actually sustainable. And therefore, there's the, the potential for a lot of greenwashing. And I think that's why it's really important that initiatives like what the UNEC are doing, who have been advising on their sustainability pledge, um, is really, really important at this time, where we look at how can we build tools that can help brands and businesses understand their own supply chains because often they don't have full transparency of their own supply chains and then in doing that also give consumers tools and guidance on what sustainability and responsibility and circularity actually genuinely mean so that we're not sort of in a kind of collective delusion around what action might need to, to be taken and why so i think that's one really big challenge another challenge i think is just the consumer mindset around waste, that we are fighting a very dominant tide for decades that has sort of culturally normalized a huge, insane amount of waste. I mean, the statistics are something like three quarters of garments bought every year um, go to landfill, and that's around 80 to 100 billion garments a year. And I was recently in Chile with the UNECE, and I traveled up to the Atacama region, um, the Atacama Desert, where there are like literally mountains of clothes that are nearly new. So 
some of them even new, but most of them nearly new, um, being piled up as waste. And uh, Chile's the second biggest importer. Ghana's the, the first of used textiles from around the world. Um, the majority of which nowadays is made from petroleum, is made from plastic. And so this insane amount of waste we are producing is a cultural problem, is a cultural consequence, I think, of normalizing um, the idea that clothes and many other kind of products in our daily life can be disposable or should be disposable and that we don't have an expectation that things should be made high quality to last and repaired when, when they break. But also I think it, it goes into pricing and the fact that we also have a kind of expectation that clothes maybe should be much cheaper than they actually are. And I sort of agree with that old adage, if it's cheap, it means someone else is paying. And there is a real price to kind of cheap, fast fashion that is, is being paid by the people who are being exploited in the supply chain um, and also the negative impacts on the earth that we're not ne necessarily costing right now into products. So also what you're saying is that there is a social dimension to fast fashion, that it's not just the environment that's being impacted, but also labour conditions in the production and along the supply chain are also impacting circularity. Totally. And it's actually very much a feminist kind of women's rights issue because they think around 60 to 80% of garment workers are women. Um, so kind of abuses in supply chains in the garment and footwear sector are predominantly um, kind of marginalising women. Um, and on top of that, the historically women have tended to be um, dominant in the garment sector, i.e., you know, the kind of kind of traditional ideas of, of making fabrics and textiles and sewing, etc. And a lot of that kind of craft womanship has been displaced by mass-produced, cheap, um, factory-produced, uh, sweatshop labor type fast fashion. And so you've got the two things happening at the same time. You've got the kind of potential exploitation of, of people in the supply chain in, in kind of exploitative labor practices alongside the displacement of um, kind of older textile industries um, that, that's happened as a consequence. So we know what the problems are. We know what needs to be addressed, but what can actually be done about it? Is it the designers and the brands or is it the consumer who really needs to think about what happens when they have decided that something perhaps doesn't fit anymore or doesn't suit them anymore? They just don't like it anymore. I think we're in a bit of a kind of collective dance, um, particularly if you live in a country that's a democracy um, and it's a kind of capitalist democracy, then we are in a sort of collective dance together where I don't think the responsibility only lies with one actor. It doesn't only lie with the politicians or only lie with the corporations or only lie with the consumers. Um, I think that one of the kind of beauties of the systems that we have right now is that they're, they are interconnected and that all of these different actors influence each other. And so as a consumer, I really wouldn't underestimate, if you live in a capitalist democracy, the power you have with your everyday choices to send signals to politicians and to the market, um, also through the conversations you have. And I think it's really important that um, consumers that have the luxury of those choices take kind of that, that level of responsibility right now. At the same time, I think it's really important that we don't put all the responsibility on consumers because it's actually really, really hard to get this right because of things like greenwashing, 
but also because of kind of it being price prohibitive sometimes um, because sustainable fashion has been niche, it's often been more expensive. We need, I think, therefore policymakers to better regulate corporations into better practices so that it becomes increasingly easier for consumers to go about their everyday lives without feeling like they're accidentally destroying the planet or exploiting people in the process. That's an incredible way of looking at it. Um, Lily, what do you, what message would you give to consumers? Because we know that there is so much work going on with, with the brands, with producers. But what message would you give to consumers about the best way to ensure that the clothes that they put on their back are not contributing to the destruction of the planet's resources? Well, the first thing I think is, the first option is vintage. Because if something has already been produced, and it already exists, then by buying it, you are essentially stopping the production of a whole nother garment. Um, so I'm a big fan of kind of vintage and secondhand, and not just in clothes, in kind of furniture and books and um, cars. I mean, cars is a bit more tricky because of the, the gasoline versus electric argument, but I think there's a strong argument for buying secondhand cars. Um, so yeah, using secondhand items, I think, is the first what of called the responsible fashion. Um, that being said, there are brands and often quite small brands who are really trying to produce in an ethical way and they need support to exist. And so I wouldn't kind of exclude buying new garments, um, because I actually think it's important to try if you're able to, to support, um, responsible designers. I've set up a few businesses myself trying to do responsible fashion. And it is such hard work. It's really hard to try and kind of swim against the tide of, of the system, which tries to make everything in a kind of often, often making things in a cheap, exploitative way is the easiest path when you're producing something, trying to produce it with the best possible materials um, to try and ensure transparency in the, the supply chain, to try and make sure everyone's paid fairly. And to do that at a price that consumers are willing to meet is a really hard challenge. And that's why I like to try and support the brands that are trying to do that. And then I think the other thing that's really important to think about is the lifetime of products. And so switching the mindset from buying kind of buying more often things that maybe you don't love so much and instead buy less, but buy things that you really, really love and that you want to have in your life for many years to come. That maybe you can even see yourself passing on to someone else, you know, whether you have a, a child or a nephew or, um, you know, a friend that you could pass it on to in later life, buying things you love and then making that commitment to repair and recycle or upcycle that garment um, over time feels like an important part of the, of the dynamic too. It's also really important that people are made aware of where something comes from, of the provenance of something. I have a lot of faith in humanity and I think there's loads of, I write about it in my book, there's loads of uh, research and data that illustrates that you know, humans are fundamentally mostly kind creatures <laughs> and that cooperation has been a driving force for evolution for centuries. And so I think that when you give consumers the information and they're made aware of the choices, of the implication of the choices they're making each day, that most, or at least very, like many, many of those consumers would make better choices. Because I think that most consumers don't want to be kind of complicit in destroying the Amazon rainforest or feel complicit in the exploitation of people and, you know, child labor around the world, or all the 
or be complicit in the fact that microplastics from the ocean largely come from fashion or a huge proportion of them come from fashion. I don't think most people want to be part of that problem. And I think given the right information and access to solutions, I'm hopeful that we will see, and we are already seeing, trends go in a better direction. Lily, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you very, very much indeed. Joining me now is Dr. Katia Vladimirova, a senior researcher at the University of Geneva, working on the topics of sustainability ethics, consumption and fashion. She's broadly interested in the challenges of a large-scale societal transformation towards sustainability, including its moral and ethical dimensions and the mechanisms behind social change. And at the Institute of Sociological Research, Katia is the principal researcher and coordinator of a project called Geneva City of Sustainable Fashion. Katia, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Please tell me, how does the City of Sustainable Fashion work? Thank you so much for having me. The project that I have been doing for the past two years uh, for the City of Geneva was funded by a grant uh, from um, the GINO pro- program um, organized by City of Geneva for sustainable um, development uh, projects. And um, when I applied uh, in 2019, um, there was um, still you know, work on sustainable fashion initiatives for consumers or for you know, small brands. That work was still... Um, kind of slow in Geneva. We just established Fashion Revolution chapter here in Swiss Romond, and um, we just started organizing some events. But the general overview of the uh, sustainable fashion scene in the city was not very rich in terms of activities or shops uh, or platforms available to consumers. So um, being interested in a social transformation towards more sustainable uh, consumption patterns in the fashion area, I proposed to the city of Geneva to explore, to map the key actors, to understand better what's going on in the city with the ultimate goal of supporting these actors, supporting the initiatives, trying to figure out what the city could do, uh, what different stakeholders could do to improve the offer to improve the range of things that consumers can do. And the project just finished in April. Um, we're still wrapping things up because it fell, as you can imagine, <laughs> two past years, it fell smack in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So it was really bad timing to do field work. Um, everything was closed. Uh, but we, nevertheless, you know, we, we carried on with the project and we're wrapping up the, uh, the final report that is going to be available uh, very soon in English and in French. The project, is it mostly about recycling clothing, so people buying secondhand clothes, or is it also looking at the sustainable production of clothing? Indeed, yeah, we can understand sustainable fashion from production or design perspectives or from the perspective of consumer action or from the perspective of waste management. And actually, the the project that we have conceived here in Geneva was really to understand better what is happening uh, because no, no such work has been done before and uh, fashion only now is becoming a priority topic. We've been working on it for two years, and um, in February this year, uh, City of Geneva has published the climate strategy, and we were really 
pleased to see that one of the priority measures identified to combat climate change locally, it, it's a major strategy that's guiding, you know, the city of Geneva in its work and, you know, different stakeholders involved. And we were very pleased to see that overconsumption of fashion was um, established, identified as one of the priority measures to tackle. And that was in part also due to our work. The thing is, when I came out and proposed the project and we had an interview at the city with the city officials uh, at the selection phase, the question I received was, why should we invest into this project uh, rather than investing in a large-scale awareness-raising campaign? Indeed, we do need to raise awareness. But if we raise awareness telling people that it's not good to consume fast fashion, that they're doing things wrongly, they're not doing things in a good way, without proposing alternatives, that's just going to create a large number of confused, frustrated individuals. So my idea was to really establish what are the initiatives so that now when we do awareness raising campaign, when we invest in communication, in different kinds of events, activities, we not only say that it's bad to consume fast fashion, but we also say, instead, why don't you do this, this, and this? And what are your this, this, and this is? This, this, and this. <laughs> so essentially, there are three key um, sets of policy actions that came out of this report. Um, and for that, for this piece of work, I had to speak with a lot of local actors and uh, most actors who are mentioned on most parties. They participated, they're contributing to the report. So there's three main priority action areas. First one is indeed to raise awareness. Um, right now, the small actors like uh, small secondhand resale shops, even, you know, reselling high quality luxury merchandise, but also little shops that sell ethical brands, uh, new, um, those little commercial actors, they really struggle with getting themselves known. And they really need help with this because while all of the people I've met almost Everybody is really passionate about their work and they see their role in the circular economy as closing the loop, as uh, extending reuse, um, the use of garments, garments lifespan, or, you know, offering something that's made in a responsible and ethical way. They get tired because there's only that much that each um, small enterprise, a small entrepreneur can do. They are really asking in one voice to help with uh, raising awareness about the impacts of fast fashion locally in Geneva. And about, you know, the ways um, to uh, consume more responsibly, meaning, you know, increasing visibility of them as local actors uh, with the help of the city, with the help of other actors who have the capacity for large scale communication. The second group of um, issues um, and policy recommendations is related to supporting, to offering tailored support to local, uh, local initiatives. Broadly conceived, we have, you know, initiatives that are related to secondhand resale. Uh, there are some independent boutiques, but there are also some, uh, many boutiques are actually backed by local charities. So more and more these charity organizations are becoming involved in the circular uh, fashion system because they collect donations, they collect uh, clothes. And in Geneva, it is really, um, it is fascinating to see how much we export and how much we can process locally. Um, it's estimated that less than 20% can be uh, handled, sorted locally by volunteers. The people work for free, you know, it's the volunteers' work to sort clothes. And uh, then about 10% is resold in local boutiques of the total volume. 
through the charity boutiques and 3%, about 3% gets uh, redistributed to people in need. So for free redistribution uh, through social services. And the rest, so over 80% is it leaves the city. Um, so just figuring out just that was already a big, you know, um, discovery. Um, and right now when we're talking about supporting local actors, we're talking about not just providing tax breaks or subsidized rent to small enterprises. We're really talking about a large-scale infrastructural transformation. Um, charities alone cannot pull this weight. They need collaboration with the municipality. Uh, they need collaboration with local actors, for example, do um, educational activities at schools, but also activities that are related to teaching skills and competencies. So there is a, a set of measures that are related to restructuring the local ecosystem. And instead of exporting 80% of garments, uh, keeping as much as possible here, that means, you know, probably building a new facility, training new, uh, new people to, to sort, uh, take care of clothes that has been donated, et cetera, et cetera. And the last sort of priority uh, area is, uh, of course, something that could help to contribute to both raise awareness and support local actors, creating uh, a website in one place. Consumers can find all the information about different options, not just a website dedicated to uh, just secondhand or just new ethical shops, but something that where you could go in one place and you're like, okay, here are the swaps that are available. This is the calendar of uh, repair cafes that is available for the next year. I can sign up, I can plan my time, and I can participate in the best way I can. So it, it's made convenient. There are so many fabulous ideas in there and so many things that you really hope are going to continue. Do you think that now that you have produced this incredible information, so much to work on, not just for Geneva, but as a model for other cities, that it can continue, that that model is sustainable? Yes, definitely. The, the key, the core principles um, that are at the heart of Just Fashion Center is the idea of building community and trust and face-to-face -face exchanges. I believe it's really important, even though, you know, now we are really... Um, involved in online communications and there are platforms that offer us secondhand resale online you never see the other person but i believe that one of the strategic actions to take is to build a community of like-minded people where people can meet in person oh so that's one one value uh that is really central and the second value is uh, the second kind of priority area that can totally be scaled um in different cities is the idea of uh teaching skills and competencies, but in a sort of, in a holistic manner, the, the easier we make it to consumers to join and to learn about this, the better. And of course, it has to be tailored to the city size. It has to be tailored to the city mentality. But overall, yes, I believe that this Just Fashion Center, Let's Your Fashion Center, the concept of this one-stop shop for all the alternatives is is scalable for the neighborhoods in the city or for uh, smaller cities. Geneva has uh, 600,000 people. So for us, one or two would, would be okay, would be enough. But for bigger cities, of course, you'd need more. And in some cities, you have already really cool initiatives that are happening. I've been in Berlin recently, and there, these initiatives are, are flourishing by themselves, bottom up. In some cities, they may need a little bit of support and encouragement because Geneva is extremely expensive. Uh, and here, for a small boutique to pay a rent to be more or less central is, is a very heavy burden. So, yeah, it depends on the city structure uh, 
and the government willing to support certain uh, certain measures. Katia, thank you so much for joining us. That was fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Joining me now is Maria Teresa Pisani, the Economic Affairs Officer for the Economic Cooperation and Trade Division of UNECE. Maria Teresa, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Lily gave us some rich insights into the relevance of increased transparency along the supply chain to meet sustainability demands from both a social and environmental perspective. What were your thoughts on what she said? Thank you very much, Nikki. And as Lily pointed out, Consumers, governments, civil society are urging this industry to act responsibly and really to address impacts for people and the planet, impacts that Lily mentioned. In fact, there is a lot of talks around uh, sustainability actions daily on the news, which is good news. There is scientific evidence that the fashion impacts are worsening every year as they have done. Since mass production has boomed, the moment brands have started to outsource their production to emerging economies in the early 2000s. Now, clearly the strategies deployed by the industry so far do not work yet. And this is because the biggest impacts are not identified and prioritized as they should. You can improve what you know and can measure. That is why gaining the full visibility of the full spectrum of risks along the entire supply chain of clothing is so critical. From field to shelf and beyond, that's what we say. And the supply chain is where the action and the opportunities are and will continue to be. This is what we strongly believe. At UNEC, we have been mandated to come up with concrete solutions. And they've been working on an initiative which focuses exactly on enhancing the traceability and transparency in the garment and footwear sector. It is a starting point to give a face and a voice to the people behind our clothes. There are workers, women and men, behind the clothes we wear. And most of them are vulnerable people that need to be protected and respected. Now, yet the transparent and sustainable fashion industry is a shared responsibility among businesses, among consumers, policymakers, and can only be achieved in a joint collaborative effort, as mentioned by Lily. Therefore, at UNEC, we have launched the Sustainability Pledge, uh, which offer a practical toolbox to all types of actors in the fashion sector to support lasting change in a complex industry. Policy recommendations that policymakers should implement to help the industry going in the right direction. Then the traceability and transparency standard, which is for businesses to know and manage their own supply chain better. The call to action, which has been launched and addressed to businesses, associations, solution providers, NGOs, civil society organizations, for them to commit to traceability and transparency efforts and help sharing the best practices that are out there. And lastly, we have been also exploring innovative solutions, blockchain, DNA markers, satellite intelligence that can be applied to track and trace textile and leather 
and their sustainable and circular performance together with major brands, manufacturers, farmers around the world. If brands want to move towards responsible business model, a tools for information base about their value chain partners and suppliers base is necessary to guide their partners through the sustainability journey. For instance, by filling knowledge or technological gaps. If fashion brands want to deliver sustainability claims that can be trusted by partners, consumers, or regulators, knowing the full production pattern is an essential precondition. Then, when people and consumers are given correct and trustworthy information, as Lily said, they often make better and more responsible choices. Technology is a key enabler. It provides the tools to authenticate sustainability claims and to push against the rising tide of greenwashing. And the final point, I would like to touch upon the fashion industry's waste problem, where, as we know, 90 million tons of waste are created each year, mostly resulting from fast fashion. This makes circular economy really a global mandate. And as such, Obtaining truthful information about origin, fiber content, durability, chemicals used can help reduce the use of new sources, reuse products and parts, recycle waste properly. So instead of the use and discard model, garment production and consumption can embrace circularity by design and can create attractive alternative business models to reverse fast fashion trends, and boost fast fashion out of fashion. The UNEC Sustainability Pledge and our mission to enhance knowledge and support due diligence in supply chains, we believe is a step forward to accelerate transformation at scale for the sustainable clothing industry of the future. Quite clearly, UNAC is providing the information and the support for everyone along the supply chain. But how do you thoroughly engage them to embrace all that you're addressing? Well, the sustainability pledge, uh, it calls uh, on uh, industry actors uh, to commit uh, on uh, concrete efforts to advance the traceability and transparency and knowledge sharing along the value chain. So the call to action offers a platform for engagement to uh, all industry actors. Furthermore, we have been actually piloting the implementation of the uh, traceability and transparency approach by engaging with industry actors, farmers, manufacturers, brands, and retailers around the globe. We have been uh, implementing so far about uh, 20 pilots in 25 countries around the world to show concretely to the industry that doing traceability and transparency, although a complex effort, is possible and is so necessary to support credible and trustworthy claims and address the greenwashing um, issue. Uh, and we have an increasing number of actors from the industry coming to UNEC to learn and test uh, about this approach um, and see how it works in practice to scale it up to full production. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.
Joining me now is Leonie Meyer, Associate Economic Affairs Officer from UNECE. Leonie, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, today we've been hearing about the need for a real system change in the way we produce and consume the things we wear, as well as what happens to them afterwards. In this context, how important is making more sustainable choices in the materials that we use? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here. And fibre production, some of you may know, makes the third highest contribution to the climate impact of textiles, um, which arises primarily from the production of synthetic fibres. And people often don't realise what their clothes are, are made of, so whether it's plants or fossil fuels or maybe a combination of both. Actually, most often it's it's blended fabrics, so most often we have a, a wild mix of different types of fibers um, in our clothes. And so I think it's really important to take stock of what materials um, are out there and what transformations are needed to, to lower their social and environmental impact. Sometimes you get approached and people ask, what do you buy from a sustainability perspective? You know, what can I buy with a clean conscience? And I always um, respond, don't buy anything new at all if you can. <laughs> so that's, you know, first advice, go for secondhand whenever feasible and whenever possible. And if you buy, try to buy high quality textiles made up of renewable and biodegradable fibers to enable them to return to biological processes at the end of life without lasting damage to natural ecosystems. Um, but sometimes it's not really that straightforward. So yesterday, actually, I just uh, I just read up a bit more about linen, just because of you know it's it's another um, natural fiber where you think okay, linen is 100% biodegradable, but then sometimes linen is treated with anti-wrinkle coating applied to to make it very smooth. So then again, when you have this coating biodegradability is not necessarily ensured at the end of life. Um, it will not return to natural cycles in that way. Some argue, for example, that polyester in its pure form is highly recyclable and traceable, but it doesn't really mean that it's an, a sustainable fiber choice from an environmental standpoint. So in fact, uh, I mean, recycled polyester fares actually worse in terms of the amounts of microfibers that shed during the washing of garments. So, so if that's a priority, and, and I think that's also another important point about materials, like people have different priorities in terms of what is important to them, whether it's animal welfare or environmental protection or environmental health or maybe social um, aspects. I think that's something that also everyone kind of needs to determine for themselves, but we need to have some sort of... Um, level playing field in that sense. So it can be quite confusing for the consumer to know when they are buying sustainable fashion, but how is UNECE supporting the shift to more sustainable fashion? With the Forest for Fashion initiative, we tackle this confusion or we try to tackle this confusion by first and foremost raising awareness about the link between forests and fashion. So the fact that wood is used to make textiles and that way encourage consumers to understand what some of the obscure names such as viscose, modal or lyocell stand for and what some of the environmental implications of making these textiles are. 
when we talk about forest fibers, um, and the technical term is actually man-made cellulosic fibers, um, man-made because the, the wood pulp um, or the cellulose um, source that is used to make these fibers is treated with chemicals in a chemical process um, to make textile materials. So when we talk about forest fibers, we talk about a relatively small percentage of the global fiber market. It's, um, we have 60% of the global fiber market is dominated by polyester. So there's huge amounts of actually plastics. <laughs> I mean, I, I always say it's in the purest form, it's plastics out there on the market. Around 30% is um, made up of cotton. And then the rest, around 6.4%, um, is forest fibers or man-made cellulosic fibers. Now, um, man-made cellulosic fibers have the advantage that they are based on renewable feedstocks, mostly wood, but also bamboo and other plant cellulose, rather than fossil fuels, as is in the case of polyester. And in addition, we don't need the amounts of fertilizers and pesticides used in cotton to grow trees. So this is this is one aspect that that we raise awareness about because I think there's still a lot of people out there that actually never really check the labels, um, like the little tags in their in their clothes, and that don't really know and don't really understand also the wider systems implications of the production of these fibers. And in the case of forest fibers, um, what we want to raise awareness about as well, um, and we do so by you know working directly also with young designers, with uh, the general public by by making larger communications campaigns um, is to make sure that um, the fiber input, so the wood pulp that is used to turn wood pulp into textiles, comes from sustainably managed sources. So there's still some deforestation linked to viscose production, for example, although companies have been steadily addressing this issue. But the importance is really to ensure that um, forests are managed in a way that maintains or enhances their ecological, social and economic values so that you have a more sustainable material there. And I think uh, that comes back also to, to traceability and transparency, where, of course, it's really important to know where the source is coming from. So that's why we're also working with forest certification agencies to really create that link there. Leonie, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You've been listening to One World Zero Waste, the circular economy explained. Please use the hashtag One World Zero Waste to share your thoughts and look out for another episode shortly. The podcast is produced by Gianluca Alaria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>